Hello, and good morning, everyone uh, in New York, and good afternoon to those on this side of the Atlantic. You're joining Gunda Green Finance's two-part webinar covering the topic of financing the role of sustainability with private capital. And my name is Dr. Andy Sloan, and I'm Deputy Chief Executive of Guernsey Finance, and I lead our Green Finance Initiative here in Guernsey, Guernsey Green Finance. Now, before we start our panel, um, I'd just like to take a moment or two to introduce Guernsey. For those watching who are unaware of our location, Guernsey is a small island, uh, one of the Channel Islands, located just off the coast of northern France, loyal to the Duke of Normandy. Uh, that's Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of England and Scotland and Wales, um, but we're not part of the United Kingdom. Economically, we're a global finance centre specialising in servicing private wealth and funds, and we're administering around a trillion in US in assets with a fund sector of around 400 US AUM. And we're Europe's leading centre for administering private equity. As a jurisdiction, we're committed to green sustainable finance. We've developed the world's first regulated regime for green funds. We published our green principles for private equity earlier this year. Our regulator is a member of the Network for Green and Financial System, and our insurance sector is a signatory to the United Nations Sustainable Insurance Principles. As a jurisdiction, we're engaged with many different UN and global bodies, and also that includes being a member of, as is New York, uh, the United Nations Finance and Sustainability. So, to that point, we're super delighted to be taking part in New York Climate Week 2020, and we really do hope to be with you in person next year. We have a two-part panel for you here this morning. Um, the first in a moment, moderated by Tim Hames, Director General of the BVCA, that's the British Venture Capital Association, between 2014 and 2019, with a transatlantic panel of some major global names in this space. The second half here will be broadcasting live from Guernsey on our sofa in the studio behind these panels that you see here. And I'll be joined by a clutch of leading figures, uh, in Gu leading Guernsey figures, that is, um, servicing sustainability in the private wealth space. So, before handing over to Tim, I'd just personally like to thank Anastasia, Guy, and we'll be hoping to be joined by Julian. And I see you there, Julian. Good, good morning to you. Good morning. Personally, from here in Guernsey and professionally for us on behalf of Guernsey Finance. So, over to you, Tim. Thank you very much, Andy. Well, it's a real pleasure to be blessed by the most outstanding panel this side of Mount Rushmore. Uh, in alphabetical order, Anastasia Amoroso, who is Executive Director and Head of Cross-Asset Thematic Strategy at JP Morgan Private Bank. Guy Hans, founder of Terra Firma, a private equity titan par excellence and a long-standing resident of Guernsey. By Dr. Andy Sloan, who you've just seen, Deputy Chief Executive of Guernsey Green Finance. And finally, uh, by Gillian Tett, US editor of the Financial Times and a much awarded and much rightly lauded columnist as well. So thank you for being here. And I'd like to open just by asking you why you're here in a sense. You're all very interesting people, interested in lots of in things. Um, why is it that the issue of climate change and perhaps also the particular role of private capital in climate change has tempted you to engage in this technologically enticing exercise this afternoon? Starting with you, Anastasia. 
Well, good morning. Uh, great to see everybody. Great to be here with all of you. So I'll be honest, it wasn't always a focus uh, for me personally, that climate change, but in, in a little bit of personal background, my husband actually, for full disclosure, works in the oil and gas sector. So you might imagine that our conversations around the table didn't revolve around climate change and fossil fuels. However, about three or four years ago, in my role, I started doing a lot of research and work around electric vehicles and subsequently clean energy and renewables and grid storage and so forth. And what initially started as a quest for investment returns and investment opportunities has really uh, you know, led uh, us as well as many investors realize just of what paramount importance climate change is, uh, finding the right climate solutions. And what I'll say is that we now have those solutions. So I think it's a very exciting time to be talking about climate change and addressing it with private capital. And by the way, this is an issue for all of us, not just for a you know green industry, even some of the traditional conventional sectors are now moving uh, towards renewables and also addressing climate change. So I think the time is here, the time is now, and whether it's myself personally or the company that I represent, JP Morgan, we're very much committed to uh, sustainable finance. Fantastic. Well, I've never heard of carbon offsets within a marriage before, so that's most encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I can ask you, I mean, you have a long history of involvement in philanthropy and in particular enhancing education opportunities uh, for people from less privileged backgrounds at Oxford University. How have you sort of evolved from those sorts of interests to taking such a dedicated interest in this particular space? Yeah, I mean, I think the first experience I really had, um, which was very moving, was when Al Gore was about to launch his book, uh, An Inconvenient Truth. And uh, we got him to speak uh, in London uh, right at the very beginning before it was launched. And we sent out copies to all our investors. Um, I have to say that the actual um, presentation was slightly over oversized um, by uh, a bunch of school children singing uh, Yellow Taxi. And um, that was far more moving than Al was, but Al certainly did speak an awful lot of sense. And I think from then onwards, that's probably 2006, every sort of business we looked at, we tried to think about what were the EHSG things, what did it really mean with climate change? Um, I've always been a passionate believer that man is producing climate change. And my businesses have always been more affected by it probably than people would expect. We've had garden centers, uh, we've had Scottish forestry, uh, we've had wind farms, we've had solar energy, we've got Australian uh, cattle stations, we've got a winery in Tuscany, um, and we have McDonald's restaurants in the Nordic, and every single one of those businesses has been affected by the weather, and has been affected by climate-related issues. So to me, it's not about um, in a box of its own, it's absolutely essential in terms of how you look at any business. Um, I think we owe it to our children. Uh, we owe it to their children to start making some really passionate moves. And I, I get very upset by the fact that you know we are spending trillions on COVID. And if we'd spent a similar sort of money on trying to find some real positive solutions to how the world can develop, but at the same time, not destroy itself, uh, we'd have made an enormous progress. Thank you very much. That's very clear. Um, Andy, um, you mentioned that Guernsey is a small island, which it is, but it doesn't seem to be in any great danger of being flooded just yet. Um, what has brought your personal interest in this area to life? 
Well, for me, I mean, personally, I gave a bit of the Guernsey sales pitch in my introduction, um, but, you know, I made it very clear as a jurisdiction we're committed to this space. Um, but for me, it, you know, I was brought up in the 80s and it was unbuilt shuts and, you know, an acid rain in those days. And then you know, I hung around with some of the Greenpeace guys in the 90s, and, you know, Brent's Bar, et cetera. And then, you know, it moved, you know, it's just always been with me. And as a jurisdiction, uh, we were committed to Kyoto. We met our Kyoto targets like the UK did. Uh, and then obviously now with commitment to sort of um, uh, net zero for 2050. Um, but my personal journey was pretty much informed. I this before this job, I was a director of the GFSC, which is our financial services regulator. So very informed by TCFD. And when we were as a jurisdiction looking at a strategic review of, of our future as a finance sector, I was very much informed by that. And we were very fortunate in having good relationships with both Bank of England, but also what is called then the, the UK's Green Finance Initiative. And Sir Roger Gifford and others, you know, were getting lent a good helping hand in this space and, you know, and helped us on this journey. And we were very fortunate as a jurisdiction to have a lot of firms and a lot of residents, you know, with a strong legacy of, you know, charitable giving, philanthropy and investment and sustainability in this space. Obviously, we've got a guy here joining us today, but others such as Steve Lansdale, down investing in Africa yeah and so for us it was a very very small but logical step to you know to commit to sustainability as a jurisdiction excellent and finally um Gillian um there are so many things that you could write about <laughs> and, um, and many of them perhaps appear to have more short-term immediacy you know bank mergers and the like um why have you come to take such an interest in this particular domain? Well, thank you for the question. And um, I live in a land, I'm talking to you from America, which is dominated by Donald Trump's tweets. Um, so there are certainly lots of things we could be writing about. Um, and what, in my case, a bit like Anastasia, this was not an area that I had been covering for a long time. Um, but what happened was back in 2017, soon after Trump became president, I noticed that I was getting a lot of emails about ESG and green finance issues. And I also realized that there was nowhere at the Financial Times or really anywhere else on the mainstream financial press that was covering this properly partly because it was so opaque and murky and fragmented, but also because it was a very slow-moving story that didn't have the drama of Donald Trump's tweets. Yeah. And in many ways, it struck me as being quite similar to what I saw in the space of financial innovation and credit derivatives in the early part of the last decade. So um, I suggested to my colleagues we should launch a special platform at the FT to cover green finance and ESG. Um, I have to be honest and say it took me a year of lobbying to get the support because most journalists are trained to be pretty cynical about this and to assume that it's less exciting than Donald Trump's tweets. But we launched it just over a year ago. It's called Moral Money. I'm going to do your plug. And um, I'm delighted to say it's been one of the most effective for most um, successful new products we've ever launched, very much to the surprise of many of my um, colleagues. And I think it captures what's really at stake here, which is that we didn't call it moral money because we're trying to be um, moralistic or give people sermons. We did it because when Adam Smith drew up his vision of free market capitalism, which drives the financial industry, drives essentially what places like Guernsey um, have built their living on, 
he didn't just write um, The World of Nations about competition. He also wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments about the need to have a moral and legal and social framework that people could buy into. And I think climate change has really cut to the core of that and made us think about the consequences of what finance and business are doing. So that's what we're trying to write about. That's why I'm here. Excellent. Right. Now, to pick up on a point that Guy made in passing about the pandemic, um, there's clearly quite a lively debate between different views about what the pandemic will have in the medium term for climate change as an issue. There's a camp that thinks this is going to be actually its own bizarre and horrible way a wake-up call. It, it shows us the fragility of our ecosystems, despite all our technological wizardry. It shows us the international interdependence that we all have, and it shows us the cost of ignoring something. After all, SARS in 2002-03 didn't come that far away from kicking into pandemic status, but we all sort of shuffled it into a box, and that's view number one. View number two, which actually UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is articulating uh, as part of the virtual UN General Assembly, is that actually, no, um, there's a danger that the, the rise of a new mega issue, uh, health security internationally, might crowd out climate change intellectually, politically, spiritually, financially, and actually in some ways be a adverse competitor to it, that will lose the momentum we seem to have earlier this year before the virus struck. So that's going in the reverse order. Um, which of those two views is closest uh, to your personal position, even if it's not the position you'd like to see happen? Um, Julian, um, pandemic, friend or foe to climate change? Great question, because in fact, when the COVID-19 crisis started, I must admit, I said to my colleagues, um, you know, have we launched moral money at the wrong time? Is this going to completely crowd everything out? And in fact, quite the reverse has happened. Um, we've actually seen a dramatic increase in reader interest and engagement. Um, one of the most interesting things about what we're seeing from the moral money platform is that our engagement levels and the degree to which people reopen open the email and pass it on to colleagues is much higher than for any other topic, which makes me think there's a real grassroots information um, snowball happening as people tell other people inside companies that they need to pay attention to this stuff. Um, so obviously this has tilted the balance away from just the E towards the S and G as well, but they are interrelated. But I think what's happened is that the climate crisis, sorry, the um, pandemic has shown three things. One, science matters, and you ignore that at your peril. Secondly, that we do live in a globally interconnected world, and again, you ignore that as a, at your peril. But thirdly, that behavioral change is possible, not just at the individual level in terms of mask wearing, but at the policymaker level and, frankly, the corporate level too. And those are three takeaways which are very relevant to climate finance. If I may, we seem to have lost Tim there for a moment. Hey, so well, been... I think you should take over. <laughs> I think you should be taking over, or else I can take over. I'm paid to be a moderator often, so, or not paid, but I'm at my day job. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, Julian, feel free. I mean, uh, Anastasia, I mean, uh, Julian, Anastasia, but um, to okay. that question, what do you think, Julian, this question and uh, Julian's three points? 
I'll chime in. It's interesting that we're talking about the healthcare issues of the pandemic, but the reality is climate change and air pollution are also health issues. So I actually see a very strong link and the need to have a discussion about climate change uh, and, and the pandemic. You know, if you look at the, the world, if you look at some of the air pollution stats, for example, we know that only 20% of people around the world actually breathe clean air. The rest of us are breathing some sort of level of pollution. And the reason that's relevant is because you take a respiratory disease like COVID and there are early studies that show that the rates of mortality are actually higher in places that have higher air pollution. So I actually see a very strong linkage between the healthcare issue and the climate change issue. My other sort of lessons learned about this uh, this pandemic you know in the beginning many hailed the fall in co2 emissions you know we shut down the economies and of course co2 emissions fell i don't think that's something to hail because we're right back to where we started in terms of co2 emissions but so i think the real answer the real uh, you know lesson learned here is that Climate change is not about shutting down certain economic activities, certain parts of economic activity. It's the ability to carry out that activity, but in a cleaner and greener way, because the former is not sustainable, but the latter certainly is sustainable. So I think the role of private capital in carrying out these cleaner and greener solutions is, is very much top of mind for investors. And like Jillian has pointed out, we've gotten significant interest from investors, especially this year, uh, not only in putting money to work in ESG assets, um, but also really seeing some of those returns come through. I would just jump in and say one more thing quickly while we're waiting, and I'd love to hear what Guy has to say about this and also yourself. But um, for me, one of the messages I had to communicate to my colleagues and which we're trying to communicate to FG readers is that people think that ESG or green finance is about activism and about campaigning um, in a way that you positively want to change the world. And that's how it started, and there are people doing that. But I think being cynical, um, it, alongside people who are concerned about not doing any harm to the world, there's a growing number of people who are not concerned about not doing harm to themselves in the sense of making sure they don't have stranded assets blow up their portfolios, making sure they don't lose their clients, their customers, their, you know, having reputational risk, etc. So ESG and green finance has moved from being a tool of active, noisy activism to, frankly, risk management. But now we're seeing, and I'm sure Guy can address this, um, it also moving into an area of potential new returns. Um, and for me, that's a big shift that's been occurring that I don't think most people in the mainstream media world fully understand yet, or frankly, some investors. I, I, I'm definitely happy to address by Guy. Do you want to lead us off? Yeah, you got Gillian's saying there's 100% right. I mean, so I suppose I was brought up in sort of believing that one was meant to leave the world for the next, a better place for the next generation. And I have to say, I don't think my generation has done a very good job of that, probably be about as bad as we could. Um, but the younger generation is really, really focused on that. And any major company, any major brand um, will ignore them at their peril. And if you take, for example, you know, our business in the Nordics, which is 425 McDonald's restaurants. Uh, we actually have to focus on sustainability and what we're doing in terms of, you know, size for good is what we call it. So our adverts, you'd be quite amazed, aren't about a nice juicy burger. They're not about a, a wonderful 
uh, ice cream. They're about where do we get our chickens from? Uh, what are we doing with regard to green energy? When are we going to be carbon neutral? How are, we, how are our cows looked after? How are, we, how are we dealing with methane? And they're very, very different. Now, that's the Nordics. And you know, the Nordics, I think, socially is ahead of most of the Western world. But where the Nordics leads in this area, I think the rest will follow. Uh, I really believe the, the youth of today have a very, very different agenda from the Thatcherite uh, youth that I grew up with. And um, that agenda is much more about a balanced world. It's about sustainability. It's about willing to give up economic growth um, for having a, 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 a better environment. And um, big companies, if they miss that trend, um, my personal view is they won't, won't succeed very long. So I think uh, we're going to see the consumer affect big companies in the way it normally does. And I'm actually very, very positive long term uh, about the effects uh, on the environment of COVID. Uh, short term, it's a, it's a perfect storm. But long term, I think actually we'll come out in a different place. Um, having said that, there's going to be a huge conflict between the old and the young in terms of where the world goes. Can I just jump in? Apart from else, I'd love to hear Guy tell us how to say where, where what is your methane footprint in Swedish or or, Nor or Norwegian or Finnish? I can't um, any any language. Um, but we have a <laughs> we have a business down in Australia which is uh, three hundred thousand cattle, and our aim is to get them uh, carbon neutral within five years. And you know, one can do it. It just it it costs money, but it's not a huge amount of money. It's it's a margin. Yeah. But I have a serious question. I have a serious question for both. Both gone. Yep. I'm just going to right. sort of bring Tim back into the conversation to say we were just going through the, the, the COVID, uh, the lessons from COVID, yep. and just to uh, tap in that. sort of that where we were, and Gillian was still talking about interest and rational interest. And if I just throw in on that point, the you know, this this issue being itself for me, Gillian, being you know, the convergence of self-interest as well as social interest. So you've got that, so as, as Guy said, that Thatcherite sort of mentality alongside what I'd maybe say sort of maybe the Blair Brown sort of uh, social sort of uh, uh, motivation too. But to come back to our on the COVID, on the greening front, and the, you know, the health point that you made with regard to Boris Johnson, um, as you saw in our Sustainable Finance Week back in June, uh, it might be that, that that might be a particularly UK sort of perspective, but I said globally, and particularly from our perspective, we're seeing, particularly since June, more and more interest in, in this space. But again, Julie had a fair few questions that she was going to jump in with, but I'll, uh, I'll pass the baton back to you now, if that's okay, Tim, and, and then Julie obviously jump in after, as it were. Apologies to the panel for what was, I assure you, the longest and most painful 65 seconds of my life. That's the sun that suddenly, suddenly realized that someone's screen's gone frozen. It's mine. Anyway, um, can I go back to Anastasia? I mean, rationalizing green investment and returns. Um, now, you probably have the best view of this of all of us, and this is very much your kind of day-to-day -day existence. So are we seeing greater actual investment? Who are those investors? And how confident are you that we're on a sustained trend here? 
Tim, we definitely are seeing those investments. And it's interesting because Jillian had painted earlier this picture of investors over the years having to choose the right thing to do, the morally responsible thing to do, and the one that's going to yield them financial results. And those two stars are finally aligned today. It is no longer investing in climate change and renewables. It's no longer just a responsible thing to do, but it's increasingly becoming an economic thing to do. And we see that in several different places. When you think about ESG and sustainable investing, the the first pillar of that was the exclusionary screening and let's make sure we don't have any sin stocks in the portfolio at this point that's a little bit basic that's a little bit rudimentary now we want to be focusing on companies that are integrating esg into the decision making that they're having and so there's more and more of those companies and as a result there's more and more investment opportunities so we see a significant growth in the esg funds that are being offered globally and in importantly in the funds that actually are flowing to in the assets that are flowing to those funds. So it's interesting amidst the pandemic if you looked at the market flows broadly speaking assets came out of equities. But if you looked specifically at the ESG equity category, we saw a lot of flows, billions of dollars go into ESG assets. And to you, Tim, to your point, I don't think this is just a coincidence and I don't think this is an off year. I think this is a start of what is going to be a longer term trend. Um, I'll give you a few other examples. Um, at JP Morgan, we're making a 100% commitment to ESG integrated assets. So all of the funds that we have on the platform already take into account the financially materially ESG factors. And I think that's, that's here to stay. So that's one category that's attracting investors, which by the way, some of those ESG funds are leading the market by 400 basis points this year. So the flows are going where the returns are also materializing. So ESG investing is one category, but then there's this other category, which I tend to focus on quite a bit, which is the thematics within ESG. As good as you think the ESG strategies themselves are performing, if we start looking at thematics like electric vehicles or clean energy, for example, they're performing even better. This year, the clean energy index is up 42% versus the broader markets, which are basically up two or so percent. So I think investors are increasingly taking note of that. And to my original point, this is not just the right thing to do. This is actually, this makes sense for the portfolio because that's where returns are. But is this a sentiment that's predominantly demonstrated by really quite sophisticated or quite large or quite philosophically committed investors or across the pitch? Earlier this year, um, Guernsey Green Finance held a Sustainable Finance Week, a great success. And one of the speakers there, I guess was on the Sustainable Finance Committee, not quite climate change, um, basically said that there were 2,200 existing studies on sustainable finance, 93% of which demonstrated that there was no adverse impact on returns. Now, personally, I'd be amazed if there were 2,200 people in the world who knew that uh, before um, she kindly uh, um, shared that, that data. So I mean, is this an area where the more, if you like, run-of-the-mill investor has yet to believe um, that, 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 that there isn't some sort of adverse trade-off? 
I think it's definitely an emerging trend. Um, however, I would take it even a step further. It's not only that there's not an adverse impact on performance from including the ESG factor, we find that there could even be a positive impact on performance from incorporating the ESG factor. Because focus on the environment could actually mean lower costs of electricity for companies. And focus on social and governance could mean lower future potential costs of corruption. So Tim, we're early on in this process, but I think this is going to go from the niche to the mainstay over the next several years. Excellent. Guy, you must spend an awful lot of time talking to people who invest. Um, do you think the message is getting through? Is it getting through fast enough? Uh, yes and no. I, I, think it's an, I do think it's a little bit of an age um, issue. And, you know, we, we mentioned Blair, Brown and Boris. Um, I'm going to say something controversial here, but you know, and I, I did say this to one of the three, I won't say which one, uh, but there's a little bit um, in the investment world of white men over 50 who really aren't in touch with what's really happening in the world. They think they are, but it's a very small number of people. And I would put Blair Brown and Boris definitely in that category. And uh, to use a Chinese analogy, which I use with one of them, it's a little bit like a frog in a pot in China at a restaurant getting boiled slowly. And uh, it, you know, it, it gets hot first and suddenly it's dead. And, and I think the investment traditional strategies and the focus on going for short-term profits rather than focusing on long-term earnings, particularly when you get interest rates down at these sort of levels and you t t are just wrong. You know, if you actually look at the returns, you make a lot more money if you can find a good business. And, you know, this is, you know, it's been proved over so many years, which will adapt for where society is going over the long term. You might not make as much money as an IRR, but in terms of cash multiple and holding it. So a lot of businesses we do, you know, we look at holding them for a very long period of time. And then we work out what do we need to do to make them trans transfer for that success. And I mean, and bizarrely, one of our most successful investments has been in forestry. And, you know, the returns are, are minute per year. But over the very long term, they've done unbelievably well. And I think and it's about people, people understanding that, lot, that, we, that investing needs to be much more long term. And the quick buck, which was sort of what was really successful in the 80s, 90s, noughties, and it still exists, is going to be not what most people want to do with their money. They're looking for a much longer period. Andy, do you see a similar generation gap here to Guy? And um, is that a cause of frustration that we have to sort of set the watch for 10 years' time for enough people to come through who think the world of a world in a different way? Well, I expect mean, my chagrin that unfortunately I'm also in that category of being a white male over 50. But, uh, but yes, in terms of the research that we've you know, identified, but also the practitioners we've spoken to, it is a, a, a generational thing. And I totally to agree with Guy. One of the themes that came out with our Sustainable Finance Week in June was the, the, the ethos of, of investing through the cycle. Uh, we had a panel with uh, Divya Sharmia and Gerbs, your ex-colleague, and uh, Richard Burrow, who sort of talked about the fact that the, the private capital
will model the ability to invest through the cycle without the sort of, I say, the concerns about that short-term quarterlies um, will lend itself more to investing in assets that were more sustainable and also assets that, you know, ultimately were, you know, providing climate change mitigation, which is sort of, you know, the purpose of today, as it were. Right. Um, I'd like to pivot a bit and go straight I'd to like Julian. Oh, sorry, please, please, Julian, please, please, yeah. please respond. <laughs> I want to jump in and just make two points. Firstly, um, I think one of the biggest impacts, one of the biggest factors changing attitudes today, to be truly cynical, is the rise of the daughters of the middle-aged white male elite leaders. Because if you look at what's happened from a political economy perspective in the last five decades, basically you're getting all these 20-year-olds who really for the first time in history have been educated to assume that they have a voice if they're, if they're women and a career, and are going to their dads and saying things like, you know, what about gender rights? That's had a big impact. But also saying things like, what about green finance? And that's having a real impact on the older generation. Um, and I think that's changing attitudes. The second point I'd say is that um, I think one of the biggest blockages, to go back to Anastasia's point, is the financial advisors at the moment. I think there are big sell-side banks like JP Morgan or UBS and others who are producing some amazing products, not least because they have clients, corporate clients that want to get involved in this. You have a rising groundswell of end consumers who are interested in these products, but it's often the more traditional financial advisors in the middle who are the blockage here. And that's partly because they are part of the older co cohort um, that you know, middle-aged people who have been grown up in a different world. It's also because for them often trying to fit this into the traditional framework of finance is hard because green finance is opaque, fragmented, and there's a real language issue, which is very similar to what I saw with credit derivatives. Um, when I started launching Moral Money Financial Times, we did an internal audit to see how many articles we actually had within the FT on these topics. And I discovered immediately it was impossible to track because we had 17 different labels in our metadata tagging system to describe this stuff, most of which were acronyms that mean nothing to ordinary people. So trying to consolidate the language and the way we present it into an easily understandable way is incredibly important. And if you think of the impact that inventing the word shadow banking had to change the conversation around credit derivatives a decade ago, I think phrases like stranded assets are going to have the same psychological and communication impact because at a stroke, ordinary people can understand what's going on, and I think that's very important. Can I stick with you, Gillian, and then move the question on slightly? Because this is a, you know, this is a discussion around the particular role of private capital and climate change. So clearly, um, private capital isn't going to be the only source. We're going to require here is a form of cultural uh, and economic co-invest between public capital and private capital. The record of sort of public capital and private capital at the nation-state level is patchy, shall we say, to put it charitably. Um, can these two huge walls of capital actually act as co-investors over the sort of 20, 30, 40, 50 year time frame that we might be envisaging here? 
Well, they absolutely need to co-act because for two reasons. Firstly, that there probably isn't enough public capital to actually go around and actually push this forward. But also, um, private capital needs to have you know wider frameworks to make it more palatable, credible, and take a longer-term perspective. Um, I suspect that one of the key um, phrases that we all need to dust off again, because it became very unfa unfashionable, are things like blended capital and developing interesting structures to try and do risk sharing and tap into different pools of risk appetite amongst different investors is going to be absolutely critical if we're going to have the kind of long-term infrastructure investment that's going to be needed going forward. Excellent. Andy, on a day-to-day -day basis, we're wearing your Guernsey Green Finance hat. I mean, do you see the public and the private realms moving closer together, or is there still a bit of an invisible Berlin Wall between them? Uh, I, I, I think I'm an economist. I'm going to say yes, uh, yes and no. Um, but to come to Gillian's point about the opaque structures and the, and the, and the, and the differing definitions and such, that's absolutely you know, a key issue here. And I think the point she makes about stranded assets, you know, catalyzing people in this space. Um, the Guernsey Green Fund and the Guernsey P, the Green P principles were deliberately designed to be very transparent and simple to enable investors to, you know, to, to sort of put their capital in this space. And that was survey after survey says is that that's one thing that's holding people back in their private capital because at the end of the day, it still returns. And our surveys say that 55% of investors and managers say still returns is the number one issue. Right. In terms of the matching and the code blending, it's absolutely needed in terms of that sort of getting the public capital to seed the private crowd in the private capital. But it also helps to um, adjust the returns and get the risk-adjusted returns to match to what private investors are looking for, uh, particularly in the early years. You know, Guy talked about the, the long-term horizon, but similarly, there is still there is still a need to to make sure that, that manages over a you know, sort of the 20, 30-year horizon that um, is going to be required. And Guy, um, similar point to you, I mean, public and private capital, are they chalk and cheese inherently or sort of long-lost siblings? Well, I think Gillian said a couple of points which I think are very important, which is cultural. Um, she is absolutely right. As someone with two young, uh, young, not young, they're in their 20s, two, two daughters, <laughs> Um, you know, they, I mean, they keep me in check. I mean, they are a moral compass. You know, I wanted to invest in a plastics business about 18 months ago, and they made it absolutely clear to me. They just dis disapproved of this in an incredible way. Um, and their emotionality against it was actually saved me a lot of money because the reality is it would have been a disastrous investment. But I didn't pick up where young people were going with regard to their attitude to plastic. Um, I think it goes further, though. I think the addition of women at the senior levels in the workforce is changing the attitude. And uh, yeah, it's, it's not a coincidence that the, the countries which are dealing with COVID the best all have women leaders. Um, it, and it comes down to, a, a, I think, a cultural view, which is about collaboration, which is something which Anglo-Saxon nations and Anglo-Saxon men have really, it's not a skill we learn. We were taught to win. You know, we were not taught to collaborate. And I think the future is going to have to be much more about collaboration. And that collaboration, you know, enters into the whole public-private partnership. It's too much, and I've done a, a number of them. It's too much, you know, we're fighting for our side, the government's fighting for its side. 
how can we win our position rather than how do we overall win and then argue about who picks up the, the pie. But let's get the overall thing worked out. And there's a little bit which I sort of feel very strongly about, you know, you know we can learn um, from Asia, which is where people do focus, first of all, on the relationship and secondly, on the legalities. We tend to focus on the legalities first and then the relationship. And th th that, that is never more important than when you're, when you're looking at long-term um, sustainability issues. That's a very powerful theme. Anastasia, would you like to pick that up? I mean, how comfortable would some of your clients be in investments in which government was a significant partner? I think the issue of collaboration brought up on this uh, panel is, is really important. And I think our clients are definitely open to those investment opportunities if they coincide with investment returns. And I think that if is a very important uh, qualification. But this is once again why the stars are aligning, because increasingly when we look at some of those renewable projects, the cost of capital has fallen so much versus the stranded assets that Jillian was talking about, where the cost of capital is rising quite significantly. So all of a sudden, you look at solar, you look at wind, and the cost of capital is low. The return on capital is actually pretty significant uh, in some cases, and the yields are pretty significant. So I think, Tim, to the extent that the uh, government and the private sector collaboration fosters these sort of returns, I think the investor interest is going to be there. But I also will pick up, again, on the subject of collaboration. This is a side-by-side -side investment. Um, you know that there is a $750 billion uh, fiscal package that, of course, was it was announced by Europe. But if you put private capital alongside that, you could potentially scale that up to the numbers I've seen, like $7 trillion. So I think that's really significant. And public capital is going to finance public projects. However, private capital still needs to address the industry's commitment to climate change. And I'll give you just one really quick example, the technology industry, which is top of mind for everybody. The technology industry and all the data centers that are backing up this webcast, let's say, they consume 2% of the world's electricity today, and they produce more CO2 than the airline industry. So the government can't address that per se, but it's the companies themselves that have to do that. And by the way, a lot of those mega cap companies are either already 100% renewable or they will be by 2025. So I think it's a joint effort. And the good news today is that we're very much seeing the private side of the equation, the corporates, the individuals step up and uh, provide uh, those financing means. And sorry, just one last point. Sorry, Jillian, just one last point I wanted to mention. How is the how is the government actually going to finance some of these public projects? You know, the, the, the fiscal stimulus and the trillions of dollars that some of us run in budget deficits, it's bond issuance. So if the European Commission is going to plan to issue 30 percent of its bonds in green bonds, private capital very much has to step up and buy that. It's not just the ECB. Excellent. Did you want to come back and on that, Julian? Yeah, I just want to say two very quick things. First of all, that I do think that wrappers may be one way to go in the future when you're looking at blended finance models. Uh, I mean, heavens only knows they're mainstream enough with things like Fannie and Freddie in the US. You know, they should be extended into much more intelligent uses, frankly, than just getting people to buy more homes. Um, but I, the other point is that the point that Anastasia made talking about the data centers is just so incredibly important for this reason. I took part last um, 
week in a conversation on Milton Friedman's anniversary with Chicago economists and professors, which is the Vatican of the religion of Milton Friedman, if you like. And it was fascinating because they started off saying, well, obviously ESG is a long way away from Milton Friedman's view of the view that the only thing that matters are shareholders. But they ended up saying, we ended up all agreeing with each other, that in a world of radical transparency where customers and consumers and employees can see data like the sort that Anastasia just cited, and they can tap in and see the carbon footprint of different activities and will react. Actually, if you're the owner of a business or a manager, it is good for you under a Milton Friedman rubric to care about returns, to look at these issues, because if you don't look at ESG in a world of radical transparency and consumer and employee pressure, then your returns will suffer too. So in an odd kind of way, it's all coming together, partly ironically because of those carbon emitting data centers are making the transparency issue so much easier now. Excellent, now we have about seven minutes left. and I have a one-off question I want to put to Guy. Um, before we sort of move towards the end of our 50 minutes. Um, Guy, um, the role of private equity, and private equity has the advantage of being agile, um, but some would argue, and I accept your point that terra firma is a very honorable exception to this rule, that it can be prisoner to the notion of the, the life of a fund, the 10-year model, et cetera. Um, do you think that private, the private equity model is going to have to evolve further if private equity is going to be a significant positive player in this sphere? I think what will happen is you'll get a bit a, a bifurcation within the private equity market. And to some extent, you're, you're already seeing that. So if you are a sovereign wealth fund or if you are a private family wealth, uh, you'll probably be able to take longer approaches. Additionally, some of the bigger firms will set up longer funds. So, so my view is you'll have to split. And if you gave me a choice between investing in a private equity fund, which said we can get you 15% returns and our average life is five years, or something said I can get you 8% returns and our average life is 25 years, I prefer the 8% over 25 years. Uh, because I think that ability to reinvest at 15 is far less and the costs of doing it are far more. But I think that's a difficult thing to get out there in a world where a lot of the intermediaries are paid on short-term performance. Yeah. And the real question is how do you get the sovereign wealth money to go there, the long-term pension money to go there, um, and the families. But th th those groups um, will have the money to do it. Um, whether they'll be as big as the short-term stuff, I doubt. But you know, it's an interesting question. You look at Warren Buffett and you know, his length of his hell, how long he holds. And there's some analysis which would say that actually the reason his returns are so good is because he avoids a lot of churning, which most people do. And that adds several hundred basis points over the long term to your returns. Excellent. Well, that's a very direct and helpful answer. Well, I uh, say so we're now moving to three to four minutes towards our, our elliptic close. And I want to try and throw forward a little bit into the future in that COP26, which was due to take place this November in Glasgow, is now taking place a year later, which I suppose has the advantage that we have longer to think about it. Um, what uh, I'm going to ask the panel, actually, I'm going to start with Andy this time. Individually and institutionally, what do you 
hope and what you expect, which aren't necessarily the same thing, in about 45 seconds to get out of the COP26 process? I would hope um, there to be, I mean, there's been a significant announcement of the UK government about a role for private capital, and, and uh, I should imagine we'll see the TCFD requirements becoming entry. I think Mark Kearney sort of already said that this week, New Zealand beat him to the chase, as it were. But what I would like to see out coming out of it is a is a focus and a, and, a, and a genuine movement towards looking at policy solutions that you've alluded to previously, and, and, and guys similarly, about the role of what I'd call private private capital. When Mark Coney talks about private capital, he means anything that's not public money. And obviously, in the Guernsey context, when we're talking about private capital, we're meaning you know, genuinely private private money. And to, to be able to, to develop the sort of the, the structures, the current investment structures and arrangements that will allow for the, you know the big ticket pri uh, private investors to be investing alongside um, the, you know, the, the public and the, and the public sphere. So I would like to see that as something that was you know, on the agenda at COP26 next year. Uh, we'd be delighted to speak with the, you know, with the UK government about that. Um, you know, and again, willing and very eager to hear what you have to say on the subject, Tim, Guy, Anastasia, you know, Gillian, because I do think that that alignment, that leveraging up of the private money that you know Anastasia referred to, you know, the UK, the sort of the European Union, 750 billion, yeah, it needs to turn into trillions. Um, and how do we do that? Uh, particularly, not necessarily with what I'd call you know, the retail end of the space or the ESG uh, um, investing end of the spectrum, but the genuine those investors that are looking to invest for impacts over the 25, 30 year horizon. Excellent. Well, in 30 seconds, the rest of you, starting with Anastasia, um, COP26. Well, uh, Tim, just looking at the time, I know that we've We've had the event produced, but I'm, I'm sure we've got a few more minutes. Uh, you know, we've got a, you know, five to seven minutes to go still. I've just, unless I've got my the, my watch is incorrectly set. You know, I, I, if we can go to closer to to, to five two the hour, that would be fantastic. Uh, rather than ten sure. two, I, I was only obeying orders. Um, right, Anastasia, with a little bit more time to expound, COP26 to COP out or a real turning point. I think it's definitely an important event, um, as well as even the U.S. elections in the United States as well. Everybody's looking for that and the possibility of the green agenda that emerges out of it. But I'll go back to the economics of this, especially for private investors and for private capital. Most investors today want to do good for the world, for, for themselves, while also doing well financially. And what's increasingly happening, regardless of politics, regardless of assemblies like COP26, what's happening is the costs are dropping and the incentives are aligning for, uh, for corporates and individuals to invest in this space. So I personally think that's what's most important here. And that's going to continue regardless of the outcome of some of these events. The last thing I will say real quickly, we talked about the returns, but I think what's going to happen over the next few years is that the risks of not investing in climate change are also going to become more apparent. Whether you look at the occurrence of um, catastrophic events, they've been on the rise for the last 20 years, and guess what? They eat into the profitability of some of the property and casualty insurers. Whether you look at the ESG positive companies versus ESG negative ones, you see a huge performance diversion that could impact the portfolio. So I think it's risks like that that investors are going to uh, start paying particular attention to in the coming years. And in the meantime, the returns are there in the clean technology space. So that's Excellent. what we'll be watching. 
That's very good argument. Guy, to you, um, I mean, you, you've seen the world a bit and you're familiar with many an international jamboree that's led to disappointments. Um, are there any reasons to think that COP26 might be um, a bit different this time? I think the reasons to expect it to be different. Um, I'm not sure the reasons to expect it to be positively different. Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, we're all going to be focusing very much on COVID. Um, and I think that's not going to have gone um, by then. Um, the one thing which I do think, though, is what's measured is what people spend focus on. And the one good thing that could come out would be a different way of measuring things. And at the moment, you know, governments focus on measuring GDP, they focus on measuring industrial output, all sorts of things. One of the things that COVID's strangely done is people haven't actually economically been that much worse off earning less because there's less to spend it on. Now, does that actually change the way people want to live? And is there um, a good argument for taxing people like me who use long distance travel much greater and actually encouraging people to maybe buy domestically rather than having things from Kenya, avocados from Kenya or whatever. And then is there a way we can actually measure things slightly differently and maybe aim things slightly differently and provide the finance to do it? so that the economies become sustainable without having to use up all their water to provide avocados to the Islington house, houseman. I don't know. I, I would like a sort of holistic solution where we actually come up with something very, very different, but I think it's unlikely, but I'll still dream of it. Excellent. Gillian, I'm going to allow you the last words for a good two and a half minutes or so. Um, you too have seen plenty of these international events come and go. Um, are you, a, are you a relative optimist this time out? Uh, well, these events usually are pretty dreadful to cover as a journalist because you get a bunch of fairly meaningless statements often, and it tends to be dominated by whatever fight is occurring between the US and China, a bit like the Unger Week right now. To me, though, I think Guy's point about measurement is absolutely critical, and it dovetails with what I said earlier about transparency. And it's not just about governmental measurement. It's also about how companies are measuring their activity. And I took part in an event two days ago, which brought together for the first time ever, the heads of the big four accounting firms on a panel to talk about the launch of joint uh, metrics to measure ESG and also part of that green issues in co company accounts. And that's potentially very, very important indeed, because once companies start reporting on this stuff, it will allow shareholders and as well as consumers, employees to actually look at it properly. When they start doing it in a standardized way, it will have a snowball effect in the financial industry. And I have to admit that as someone who trained as a cultural anthropologist before I became a journalist and grew up assuming that if anyone was going to change the world on green uh, green issues, it was going to be tie-dye-wearing, hippy-dippy anthropologists changed to bulldozers, I'm now realizing, actually, it may be the accountants who end up changing the world 
as much as the activists and frankly as much as governments to a certain degree right now. Um, we're seeing a new breed of warrior accountants or activist accountants and maybe activist fund managers too. I never dreamt that private equity would go around and suddenly the devils would start wearing halos and actually you know, contributing to social and environmental good potentially. Um, so it's a very interesting landscape right now and given that what happens in COP will be very important for signaling and symbolic purposes, but actually the real action may not even happen on a government-dominated stage. Right. Well, I think that thought of eco-warrior meets EY is going to remain with me. Um, <laughs> to come. It's been an absolutely fabulous panel. The technology's more or less worked. Um, and the message has certainly been compelling. Thank you all so, so much. We're going to have a very short break now before proceedings resume with Dr. Sloan in the chair and a rather more practical discussion about what sort of investments people can make if they want to get involved as they should want to get involved now. Thank you very much indeed, panel.